Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, OOBTers. I'm so glad you're here with me, and I am super excited to share what God has been showing me in various places of my studies this Advent season. But before we get started today, I would like to share this thought with you. And it just happens to be one that I keep preaching over and over again to myself as well. Here it is. Even though this Christmas story may be familiar to us, let's try not to rush through it or gloss over when reading through. Find time to sit with it if you can. Truthfully, my prayer for each one of us is that God will open all of our eyes and give us a new way of seeing this story we've possibly heard hundreds of times before, and that He will give us a renewed sense of awe and wonder as we look closer at the gift of that baby boy in the manger. I pray God would give us all new eyes to approach the story of Emmanuel, God with us, coming down to earth. I pray that God would restore our wonder, that we would all have profound moments of thinking, wow, I've never seen that before, or I never thought of this in that way before. More than anything, I want us to be amazed by this story we're going to dig into today, because God wrote a deeply personal and amazingly beautiful story by sending His Son to earth for us. There is so very much to unpack. There is so much to marvel at. So much room for awe and wonder and worship to be found. So with that said, in today's episode, I want us to take some time together putting some flesh, so to speak, on the Christmas story. Over the course of my studies, I've come across a few resources that I feel will be oh so helpful in helping us consider the realities found through writings of possible perspectives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary, the shepherds, and the wise men even, in relation to the story of Jesus' birth. Please note that I will give the scripture references prior to reading the various sections in hopes that you will take some time to go read these verses on your own in the days leading up to Christmas. However, before we begin reading these stories, I want to camp out on a thread I feel God has been pulling for us this whole year in our studies, from Noah to Job to Abraham, Sarah, and now in Advent, in the Christmas story, Waiting. As we discussed in the last episode, there is just something about that waiting, that 400 years of silence. From Malachi to Matthew, it intrigues me, especially given the ground that we have covered this year, Genesis and Job. I don't know if I will ever fully get it, but what I am understanding more and more clearly is that God has a purpose in the waiting, whether we ever see it this side of heaven or not. It reminds me of these major premises of Louis Giglio's Advent book titled, Waiting Here for You, An Advent Journey of Hope. Number one, God works while we wait. Number two, if we are truly waiting on God, we won't miss anything. Number three, while we are waiting on God, we are waiting with God. God is there the whole time. And number four, who you become while you are waiting is as important as what you are waiting for. Oh, friends, while all of those are true, these are yet another one of those instances in which something preaches well, but is so much harder to live, am I right? In the message, When God is Silent, at Passion City Church, Louis Giglio shares this reminder of that page turn from Malachi to Matthew. A quick page turn for us represents 400 years of silence for the Israelites. However, during this time, we also read that Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as upright and blameless, 
following the statutes of God, not only in the midst of the 400 years of silence, but also in the seeming silence of God in their inability to have children. Side note here, OOB tears, does that sound at all like the descriptions we read of Noah and Job in our studies earlier this year? Upright? Blameless? Well, I hope so. Anyway, these two are hanging in there in faith with God, even though no one has heard from him for 400 years. Gabriel the angel delivers a message from God to Zechariah, and in an instant, the silence is broken. God broke the 400 years of silence in Luke chapter 1 with these words to Zechariah. It is time. Wow. Okay, so now that we have the background of the 400 years of waiting and silence from God in mind, let's listen into this excerpt from Sherry Gregg's book, Advent, The Story of Christmas. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth titled The Wait begins with Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It reads, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messengers of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 and 57 through 80. Zechariah began his descent down the carved stone steps of the mikvah. Oil lamps nestled into recesses in the temple, cast a soft, wavering light illuminating the passageway. Still, Zechariah moved slowly, stiffly, carefully. How many times did he walk this path over the years in the pre-dawn silence, year after year when his family's priestly division was called to their week of service in the temple? They made the journey to Jerusalem. For one week they lived and served there. Each and every day began in the darkest hour just before dawn in the waters of the mikvah. Zechariah's feet dipped in the water and he descended step by step until the water rose to his chest. He lowered himself until he was completely submerged. He stood up again and began to climb a second stairway out of the mikvah. Water dripped from his long gray hair and beard as he slipped the first of his priestly garments over his head. Once dressed, he and his priestly brethren each grasped a torch and filed into the temple courts. Half of the group proceeded eastward, the other half westward, inspecting the temple as they walked. When they met in the middle on the other end, they made their way into the hall of polished stones where they would cast lots to divide the tasks for the day. Zechariah and his fellow priests formed a circle around the head priest. Once everyone was in place, the head priest removed the headpiece of one of the priests as a signal that he would begin counting with him. After this, each priest held up either one or two fingers, and the head priest called out the number he had chosen for the lots. Beginning with the chosen priest, he began counting around the circle. When he reached his chosen number, that priest was assigned to the first duty to cleanse the altar. The head priest repeated the process twice more. The priest chose by the second lot was assigned the duty of cleansing the altar of incense and the candlestick in the holy place. The third and last duty chosen by lot was the most precious of all. It determined the priest who would offer incense in the holy place. The service was such an honor that once a priest was chosen, he was disqualified from all future consideration. And this day, after so many years of longing and waiting, the third lot landed on Zechariah. By mid-morning at the hour of incense, the temple courts were filled with worshipers. Zechariah stood before the door of the holy place, cradling the dish of incense in his hands that symbolized the prayers of the people. As he stepped from the bright morning sun into the dim interior of the holy place, the crowd outside began to pray. Zechariah took slow, reverent steps toward the altar of incense. He stood over the glowing embers, dipped his fingers into the fragrant incense, and sprinkled it into the fire. The smell of the incense intensified, and the smoke drifted heavenward as the prayers of the worshippers outside rose to God. Zechariah knew what it meant to pray. For years and years, he and his wife Elizabeth had asked God for a child. Decades passed, and they both grew old, but God had not answered. 
Now Zechariah stood before the altar of incense and found that his prayers had grown faint by the anguished years of God's silence. Suddenly the space was filled with the brilliance of the noonday sun. Zechariah gasped and stumbled backwards. Once his eyes adjusted to the glare, he found there was an angel standing to the right of the altar. The angel was tall and powerful. His robe shimmered with light. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the angel said. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be the joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great and mighty in the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. The angel told Zechariah that his son would serve God in the same spirit of Elijah. His birth was destined for that very moment in time, for he was the forerunner of the Messiah. But the wait had cost Zechariah. His heart was so battered and his faith worn so thin that he struggled to believe his most precious of prayers had been answered, even when the good news was hand-delivered by angelic announcement in the front of the altar of incense. When he spoke, his voice was barely above a whisper, his head bowed in sorrow and doubt. How can I be sure of this? Zechariah asked the angel. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I am Gabriel, the angel said to Zechariah. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and I bring you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Then, as suddenly as he appeared, Gabriel was gone and the room plunged into shadows and flickering firelight once again. Zechariah's hand trembled as he pulled the incense bowl to his chest. With the other hand, he felt his way along the wall and now into the daylight to face the worshippers. Zechariah returned home to Elizabeth, and after what seemed a lifetime of waiting, she conceived a child. The months passed slowly, but this time the wait was different. It was heavy with expectation and Zechariah's silent wonder at the fidelity of God. Eight days after Elizabeth gave birth, Zechariah stood cradling his infant son on the day of the child's circumcision. His friends, family, and neighbors gathered around him, eager to know the baby's name. Silent, Zechariah sat down, balanced his writing tablet on his knee, and scrawled the name the angel had given him in the holy place. His name is John, he wrote. Immediately, Zechariah's voice returned to him. The long months of silence were over. As the baby quieted and drifted off to sleep on his father's shoulders, Zechariah lifted his voice in praise to the God for whom nothing was impossible. The new father brushed his gray beard across the top of his baby's head with a kiss. John, son of Zechariah, the baby who was born to prepare the way for the Messiah, the baby who wasn't late after all, the baby who was right on time. Let's pray. Faithful God, I am so often impatient with you. Like suffering Job, I rail against the doors of heaven, begging for deliverance. Like Zechariah, I grow weary in prayer when your answer tarries. With the psalmist I cry, I am forgotten. Psalm 31, verse 12. But you remember me, O God. You bend your ear from heaven to hear my cry. You keep my tears in your bottle. You, O faithful one, move steadily, purposefully, throughout the corridors of time. Have mercy on me in my weakness. Give me strength to hope anew in your unfailing love. Help me trust that your answers are always on time. Amen. So friends, as I just did, plus as a point of reference here, in today's episode, I'm planning to read story excerpts from Greg's book, followed by the prayer found at the end of each section. And this means our prayer times today will be found throughout this episode. And after most excerpts, I plan to follow up with some thoughts from an Advent devotional I absolutely love from Hannah Brincher called The Season of Advent a 28-day journey through the story of Advent. Okay, let's now read some of Hannah's perspectives about what we see happening here in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in her day four section titled, He's in the Waiting. 
Luke chapter 1, verses 5-7 through The Gospel of Luke begins on a stranger note than the other three Gospels. It doesn't dive right into the story of Mary and Joseph as we see in Matthew. It takes you through another story first to get to the main course. It's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We don't know much about these two, but we know that Zechariah was a priest in the temple of Judea. Zechariah had a wife named Elizabeth. Of this woman, we only know that she was embarrassed by her lack of fertility. Modern-day Elizabeth likely would have been at all of her friends' baby showers, yet probably tired and broken down by shopping for other people's babies on Amazon and Target. I imagine she wrestled with being happy and rejoicing with others when they were getting the exact thing she wanted more than anything. You see, Elizabeth isn't some distant, removed character of the Bible. She was a real woman who waited, doubted, and kept pressing, even when she felt helpless. We don't get the complete interior working of Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives together, but we know from the text that Zechariah prayed a desperate and repetitive prayer to God. We know he must have said a hundred times before, God, we want a baby. Did you hear us? Did you forget about us? The Bible does not explicitly tell how long Zechariah and Elizabeth waited to have a child. Still, I can only imagine the aches and shaky prayers that came with so many years of asking only to hear back. Not yet. I wrote this series the first time while expecting our daughter, Novalee. The pregnancy experience made me feel closer to Mary and Elizabeth as my fingers tapped against the keys. But I could not help but think about the millions of women trying to conceive, and it hasn't happened for them. I can't help but think about and remember the many of us who are waiting for something to come to fruition, but all we ever hear, if not perfect silence, is the not yet. Friend, if you are experiencing the not yet right now, I want you to know I am with you today. I see you in that waiting room. I think it is far too easy to package up the story of Elizabeth and say, See? Elizabeth is someone who was waiting for something, and then God showed up. Yes, this is all true. But anyone who has ever felt the waiting period knows the feelings and longings and pain of another day, unfulfilled, and how it leaves scars. It isn't something you get over instantly or sometimes ever. It stays with you. The waiting changes us. It turns us into different versions of ourselves. Even though the Bible makes it clear that waiting is an unavoidable part of life, it is still so hard to be able to say, all of this has a purpose. All of these unfulfilled yearnings are turning me into a steadfast person. That's not something we easily utter or can tell someone else when the waiting has taken a turn for too long. The waiting period for Zechariah and Elizabeth was not because they'd messed something up years earlier, and now they were walking out of punishment of barrenness. No matter where you are today, God sees you in the waiting. He counts every prayer. He knows what your heart yearns for, and the Bible says that if you cannot specifically ask for it, God will still know your desires by the groans of your heart. That is our God. He is a God who does not dismiss us when the waiting feels endless. He is a God who does not walk out on us or use the waiting to punish us. Our God does not keep a tally of our mess-ups, waiting to dole out punishments. Quite the opposite. He is near to those who are brokenhearted. He is close to those who have yet to see the promise in the land they've been trekking through for tiny eternities. He is a constant companion. They're right alongside you with his backpack on and his water bottle filled up. He does not grow weary. Instead, instead, he leans in at the moment where the strength is gone and whispers, Hey you, lean into me. You can't walk any longer? Hop on, I'll carry you. There is more to the story, friend. The story doesn't end in the valley. Keep moving forward and see what happens next. Then moving into day five, no random days. Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Hannah says, I am not ready to move on from this place just yet. This is one of those times that that I think we need to camp out in some parts of the story. I am someone who digs for significance in everything I read and encounter. 
It's a good habit when reading the Bible because no word is accidental in this text. Everything mentioned in the scriptures is there for a reason. It holds purpose and weight. The fact that Luke mentions Zechariah and his job in the temple is a big deal. As I wrote yesterday, Zechariah and the rest of the priests were divided into 24 groups. Each group contained 50 priests and would serve in the temple twice a year. Their shift would last for one week. The priests used the ancient practice called the casting of lots to assign jobs within the temple. Lots were commonly sticks or stones with symbols adorned on them that would be thrown into an open space and then interpreted. It was the Old Testament version of rolling the dice. But even this game of chance wasn't left up to chance. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 22 states, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God was in the odds. Every person casting lots would have wanted the biggest job within the temple, the lighting of the incense to create the official offering for God. We might call this the main course, the part that holds everything else together. Because these 50 priests only came into the temple twice a year, the odds were pretty low that you would get this job more than once in your lifetime. Yes, making the incense offering to God was a once-in-a-lifetime job. On this particular week in the temple, the priests cast their lots and Zechariah was chosen to burn the incense. God used this once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah to reveal an answered prayer to him through the angel Gabriel. Can you even imagine? You've been waiting your whole life to perform this one task, and in the midst of it, God sends an angel to tell you that the thing you've never stopped praying for is finally coming to fruition. It was a beyond sacred moment, and God crafted it intentionally for Zechariah. But the symbolism of this moment runs even deeper than that. The lighting of the incense, an act performed by one person, had a specific purpose. The incense lit represented the entire nation's prayers. Alone in that temple, while the rest of the people gathered outside to pray, Zechariah lifted the nation's prayers to God, and God set the story of Jesus into motion. It was officially go time. God stepped in and said, I hear the prayers of the nation, and the redemption story begins to reveal itself today. Zechariah could have quickly gone through the motions and missed the miracle. He could have easily not seen the importance of the task and failed to look toward what God would do next. But there he was. He was present. Are you? I am often guilty of assuming there are days in my calendars that hold no weight, just days that act as a barrier from the days I really, really want to live out. But this could not be further from the truth. Our God is a God who orchestrates redemption stories. He is constantly up to something. Where we see random days, God sees hidden pockets of purpose. Where we see random lines in a story, God reads between those lines and fills our days with hidden meanings. The dinner date you have today isn't random. The gift that your friend gives you next week isn't random. That conversation you need to have isn't random. That person who reaches out in need of help this afternoon isn't random. All the things that are coming up this season have already been pre-planned out by God. And the best thing you and I can do to honor the planning is to pay close attention and lean in. We will miss the miracles if our heads stay stuck in our phones. God wants to show himself to you in the mundane and the extraordinary. He wants to be in all of it. Years ago, my friend Tori told me over tacos that God doesn't do anything halfway. He loves to show off. If all of life has the potential to give God glory, why wouldn't he show off and provide us with something to shout about? He delights in our praise, and he wants us to know that he doesn't half-heartedly think about us, but wants to deliver news to us in extravagant and wild ways. Friend, you will miss the magic if you don't look up. You will miss the magic if you spend the entire season comparing your Christmas to someone else's. You will miss the magic if you spend the entire season only thinking about what's next for 2023. 
You don't even realize you're already standing in the once-in-a-lifetime. This time that won't come again. God will never duplicate it in this lifetime. And I believe He wants to show up and show off for you throughout this Advent season. He's waiting at the door. It's time to go and let Him in. Moving on, listen in to the story of Mary, as depicted in Gregg's book in the section titled 14 and Pregnant, which begins with Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It reads, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God is with us. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Mary sat against the rough, gnarled trunk of an ancient olive tree and gazed out across the terraced hillside. Far below, Nazareth lay nestled in the valley. Her eyes tenderly rested on each of the stone homes filled with the treasured family and friends. In the center of Nazareth, rising above all else, was a jewel of her devout hometown, the synagogue. Mary's earliest and sweetest childhood memories were set in the lofty interior of that holy place. Each Sabbath, she sat snuggled close to her mother on one of the benches that lined the walls. The hazen, the synagogue ruler, handed the scroll to the rabbi seated at the center of the room. Then the rabbi unrolled the scroll and began to read, filling the synagogue with the sweet stories of God's great acts of mercy for Israel and his steadfast promises of future rescue. The readings from Isaiah were always especially poignant. Mary heard them over and over again until they were imprinted upon her mind and heart, until they shaped the course of her life. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For centuries, Mary's people told the story of a Messiah who would come to save Israel. The promise became a part of the very fabric of Mary's life. But how could she have ever imagined that God would choose her to be part of his plan for the Messiah? Mary shook her head in a vain attempt to clear it. Then she stood to walk beneath the olive tree branches as she replayed the morning's events moment by moment. She was sitting in the courtyard of her home alone, spinning wool into yarn, when a stranger stepped across the threshold to greet her. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. With dreadful surety, Mary knew the stranger was no man but a servant of God. She dropped her work and stood to her feet, her legs shaking beneath her in terror. When the angel spoke again, his voice was gentle and full of compassion. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, she had asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, the angel explained. Mary could only stare at him in stunned silence. The angel looked at her for a moment and then added earnestly, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Verse 37. And Mary knew it was true. All her life she'd heard the stories of God doing the impossible. Around the hearth on the long winter nights, her parents told of how the walls of Jericho fell before Joshua at the sound of the priest's trumpet blasts. Each Passover, as her family reclined around the table, feasting on roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, her parents told the story of how God delivered his people from Egypt. 
Mary's God was a God who parted the Red Sea and rained manna from heaven to feed his people. He was a God who led them by cloud and by fire, the great master of the universe. Nothing was too hard for God. If God called Mary to serve him, how could she ever refuse, no matter the cost? I am the Lord's servant, she said to the angel. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel was gone. Mary wandered over to the olive press and stood before the heavy stone wheel at rest on its stone base. She placed one hand on her stomach where the angel said a miracle was already underway and then bent down to pick up a few stray olives that had missed the crushing weight of the stone. Would this miracle crush her, crush Joseph, like the tender olives beneath the wheel? Joseph would know the baby was not his. He would divorce her, of course. A scribe would be hired to declare her offense publicly. She and her sweet father would be shamed. What would her parents say when they found out that she was carrying a child before she had consummated her marriage to Joseph? What would she do? Where would she go? No man of any worth would ever marry her. Everyone would know her story, her child's story. The other children would call him names. With terrible finality, Mary saw her cherished future with Joseph swept away. This would break his kind heart. Mary knelt beside the olive press, rested her forehead against the rough stone of the base, and turned her heart to the God of the impossible. I am your servant, she whispered through her tears. May it be to me as you have said. Let's pray. Emmanuel, during the season of joy and expectation, your story challenges me to remember that the curse of sin and death was broken at great price. It cost the father his son. It cost the son his life. And it cost your servants Mary and Joseph, too. In obedience to your call, they laid their future, their reputations, their very lives at your feet. I am in awe of their faith and inspired by their courage. Through the obedience and sacrifice of two peasant teenagers, heaven came to earth. Your kingdom, O God, advances still. You call me to work alongside you, sometimes at great cost. When those moments come, fill me with your spirit so that I, with Mary, might say, I am your servant. May it be to me as you have said. Amen. So, did you catch Mary reciting Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 in that account? Now hear from day three of Bringer's study about this reference to Isaiah in her devotional title, Coming, about Isaiah chapter 9. It begins, Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means coming. We engage in the Advent season to plant great expectation in our hearts for the birth of a baby in a stable, who we believe changed all of history. But the Christmas story did not begin on a starry night in Bethlehem, tucked away in a cave as a baby cried out for the first time. The story actually began 700 years earlier. Yes, 700 years earlier is when the first baby announcement for Jesus arrived. You and I are likely thinking the same thing. Isn't 700 years a bit premature for a baby announcement? Couldn't God have waited a bit before breaking this news? Didn't it set people up for shattered expectations? At this time, though, such a dark time in history, the news of something better coming in the future filled the people with hope. It gave them something to look forward to. And hope can be a mighty powerful thing, especially when you apply it to the future. A little background on the birth announcement in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophecy book. It is meant to foretell the future. We know Isaiah was a prophet writing these words in the year that King Uzziah died. This would set us up at around 740 BC, 700 years before Jesus showed up. As you begin to read Isaiah, hope seems grim. God is sick over the people. They've carelessly swapped devotion to him for impressive religious rituals that are empty. God did not like the pride of these people. He was disgusted by the idols they worshipped. If you've read the Old Testament, you know this wasn't a one-time thing. The people were constantly abandoning God for the chance to act as God. 
I get fed up with the people when I read the Old Testament, so I can only imagine how exasperating it would be for the Father who created all these people. As you're moving through the book of Isaiah, you're holding your breath and thinking, this is bad. This is really bad. And then chapter 9 happens. An announcement. Unto us a child is born. To grasp the beauty and necessity of Jesus' coming, we must know the depravity and darkness he was born into. All of a sudden, in a dark and depraved world, joy bursts forth. Isaiah cries out that a baby will be born. And he goes the extra mile and says the baby will be born for us. This is our birth announcement. God is thinking of us. He'll take over running the world, Isaiah proclaims. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His ruling will grow and there will be no limits to the wholeness he brings. Deep exhale. He's coming. He's come. He's here. He's all around this season. And he promises that he does not come with empty hands. He shows up with the wholeness and the peace that we can claim as our own. Just look at those names. Amazing Counselor. Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Typically, you name a baby in the hopes of who that baby will become when they grow up. You give them a firm name to pave the path for their future. But in this case, Isaiah boldly says this baby already has these names. He already is these things. Without having done anything, he lives up to his name. This is more than God sending a son into the world. This is God putting on skin and coming down to earth for us. This is an announcement that God is stepping into the ring. He's coming to fully participate in what it means to be human. And this announcement, well, it changes everything. Continuing on, let's read from the Christmas story as found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among the people whom he has pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In day 14 of her Advent study, Brencher says in the section called Finally With Us, from Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I grew up with versions of this story told me through storybooks, nativity scenes, Christmas plays, and advertisements. I remember my mother out in the front yard hitching up the lights for the nativity scene, 
so that all who drove by could witness a wooden baby Jesus in a manger on display. After hearing the nativity story so many times, you start to get this quaint picture in your mind of Mary and Joseph in their stable, an image of Mary rocking the newborn while all the cattle surrounded them with animated smiles. It's the perfect little Christmas story. The truth is that the circumstances of Jesus' birth were obscure and far from ideal. Joseph and Mary were waiting alone for Mary to enter labor, not knowing when that would be. The baby was placed in a feeding trough, a place where animals ate their food from. It was likely dark, just the stars above them, and people, there was no pain relief, no epidurals for sweet Mary. At that moment, it was simply she and God partnered together to bring this baby into the weary world. I have to burn this picture into my brain to remind myself that God is in the business of using the most unideal circumstances to accomplish his most significant purposes. The whole story of Jesus' birth is entirely unassuming. It's anonymous. It wasn't the talk of the town. It wasn't making the news. It was a birth in a relatively obscure area, out of sight and tucked away. And it wasn't until the star appeared that the news spread. Emmanuel is here. He is finally, finally with us. I always wonder why. Why so anonymous? Why so far from the crowds? Why a secret place? Because that is the way our God moves a lot of the time, in the obscure winter seasons. If you were anything like me, you would prefer to skip your story's winter seasons. You know the type, where God is doing something big inside you, but there is no way to talk about it. There are no words to declare it. You can do nothing but stay and allow Him to move in ways you cannot take credit for. Author Alicia Brick Clough writes, The Father's work in us does not sleep, though in spiritual winters He retracts all advertisement. And when He does so, He is purifying our faith, strengthening our character, conserving our energy, and preparing us for the future, though in spiritual winters, he retracts all advertisements. I believe this happened as Mary and Joseph prepared to give birth to their baby. God was doing something big, the biggest thing he'd ever done, but it didn't come into the world looking how we'd expect the big things to look. It came quietly. It came unassumingly. It came out of a lowly place, an environment no one would think to enter into, looking for a king. We cannot discount God's actions when it feels like nothing is happening or no one sees our growth, or no one comments on our progress. In these parts of the story, we hopefully figure out how to lean into God. In these spiritual winners, we can learn He is the only audience we need. We don't need all the followers. We don't need all the fancy filters. We don't need all the pomp and circumstance. It will never fill. It will simply never fill. What we need to do is draw closer. We must trust that God is here even when we cannot see the complete story unfolding. He is with us. Emmanuel, he is totally and completely with us for whatever is coming next. Oh, the amazing gift of Christmas, as mentioned in John chapter 3, verse 16, which reads, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's Son came to this earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Beautiful, just beautiful. So before we end our time in the Christmas story today, Let's take some moments to lean into what we can learn from the visit from the shepherds and then later the wise men. Continuing in Sherry Gregg's book, The Divine Birth Announcement, The Story of the Shepherds, reads Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Judah and his friends were camped in the fields at night because their sheep were special sheep. Judah was a temple shepherd, and the sheep in his care were temple sheep, destined for sacrifice. The irony that he was guarding sacrificial sheep was not lost on Judah. Most people he met on the street each day considered shepherds to be more in need of atonement than others. He wanted to believe they were wrong, but with each new assault of his self-worth, 
It was getting harder and harder. He scanned the flock with a practiced eye, watching for any disturbance. But the warm summer night was calm. The other shepherds settled into a companionable silence as they watched the animals. The only sound in the stillness of the night was the crackle of the fire and the gentle bleating of the sheep. Suddenly, a blinding light rent the darkness to reveal a man robed in white. He was tall and powerful, and the air around him shimmered with light. Judah and all the other men cried out in alarm and trembled as they fell face down before him. Then the angel spoke, and his voice was like the sound of both music and rushing water. Do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Instantly, the entire sky was filled with angels lifting their voices in praise to God. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Then, as suddenly as they had all appeared, the sky was dark again, and the night silent. The shepherds turned to each other. Messiah has come, old Zachariah exclaimed. Let's go to Bethlehem and see the baby, another man said. I don't know, said another. If Messiah really has come, do you think his parents would want a crowd of shepherds coming to visit? Then Judah spoke. Weren't you listening to what the angel said? The Messiah isn't in a palace. His parents haven't wrapped him in silks or placed him in a gilded cradle. They've wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, just like we do for our own newborns. I don't understand it, but somehow he is like us. The men sat thoughtfully for a moment as each one absorbed the significance of the fact that instead of God presenting long-awaited Messiah to the world in the trappings of royalty, he had swathed them in the raiment of the poor and the despised. When Zechariah broke the silence, the old shepherd's voice was heavy with emotion. Let's go, he said. One by one, the men stood, wrapped their cloaks closer around them, and began the short walk to Bethlehem. With each footfall of their sandals, they drew closer to Israel's long-awaited hope, a hope as wide as all creation, and yet as near as their own broken hearts. As they neared Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah's words seemed to come to life, walking alongside them, whispering ancient words of promise. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. A baby swaddled in rags and lying in a manger. King, a peasant, a Messiah come for even the lowliest of men. Let's pray. My God and King, you are clothed with Shekinah glory and let you laid it all aside to take the role of a peasant. You inhabit eternity, and yet you humbled yourself to be wrapped in the frailty of human flesh. With the psalmist I cry, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Psalm chapter 8 verse 4. I am so glad your angelic birth announcement was delivered not to the great, but to the dregs of society, because that means that I have a place at your table as well. Thank you, my God, for receiving the poor and the lovely, the weak and the despised. Your coming is truly good news for all. Amen. Moving on in day 19, Brencher says in her Engaged in the Ordinary devotional for Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. In Luke's account of the Christmas story, Christ is born, and the story immediately pans out to a field in the same region where shepherds were watching their flock. An angel of the Lord appears before them and tells them, Don't fear. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Imagine this with me. You're doing your ordinary, everyday work and minding your own business when out of nowhere, an angel appears. You've never seen an angel before, so you're struggling to conceive that one is standing before you. Of all the people this angel could visit, why you? That seemed pretty unlikely. After all, you're a shepherd. To fully understand the gravity of this part of the story, we must forget everything we think we know about shepherds 
except the sheep. The sheep can stay. We must throw off the images in our brains of men with bedsheets over their heads, wrapped in layers of linen, peacefully watching their flock through the night. During this time period, shepherds were considered the lowest of the low in society. They were despised men. They were men who couldn't be trusted. They were men so rigid and weird that they were kept on the outskirts of society. And yet God chose these men. These men were so engaged in their ordinary everyday calling when God broke through and altered their lives with the best news they'd ever heard. So often I catch myself thinking the present moment isn't good enough. I could be doing something so much fancier, so much more noteworthy. I could be traveling instead of cleaning my house. I could be speaking on a stage instead of scrubbing the dishes or doing paperwork. There is so much of the ordinary life I'm tempted to write off as just that, normal, because it doesn't fit my standard of what's exciting. And yet God shows up to meet us in the ordinary. What if one of those shepherds decided that night, you know what, I'm over this. I'm so tired of showing up to this calling. I'm going to go off and forge my own path. He would have missed what God was doing. God showed up to these men as they stayed present in their calling, not abandoning responsibilities for something fancier. Remember those Passover lambs? These were the guys. Bethlehem was their neighborhood. These shepherds who look after the temple lambs were the first to witness the Lamb of God. Only God could orchestrate such a significant moment. Ordinary men in the fields, doing their everyday work, encounter the message of hope first. Friend, I know how hard it is to stay where you are, in the job you don't like, in the marriage that feels stale, in that situation that no matter how hard you pray, it never seems to shift or change. There's nothing easy about it. There will be days where, plain and simple, you barely muster up the strength to be present. But something happens when we show up to the here and now, despite someone else's highlight reel looking better than ours. Something happens when we decide, I cannot see the entire future, and I pray to God I won't be in this spot forever, but I can see today, and today God is giving me the strength to stay engaged in my everyday ordinary. It's easier to think five years in the future or romanticize the past. That kind of thinking robs us of the here and now. I remember my therapist explaining to me one time, the prayer goes, give us this day our daily bread. This day is enough. Just be where you are and invest in that. Refuse to worry about tomorrow. I love how God shows up to these shepherds, these outsiders to society, when engaged in their ordinary calling. It pumps me up and gives me a new appreciation for the daily work I have to do, because I know that God is in that, too. Where are you, weary friend? Where are you losing hope or thinking things will never change? It's okay to wish you were somewhere else, but are you missing out on something important by not being present? When these men were paying attention to their daily job, the angel showed up to say, Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Now let's read from Greg's story, just as the angel said about the shepherds, referencing Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. The rising sun breached the horizon behind the shepherds. The walls of Bethlehem were bathed in pale, silvery light. The men quickly made their way inside the city, then paused with uncertainty. The streets were as familiar to them as the rooms of their own homes, but which house held the Messiah? They clustered together for a moment, trying to remember which families were expecting babies. A few minutes later, the shepherds stood before Joseph's family compound. Zachariah stepped forward and called into the courtyard, Joseph, son of Jacob. A moment later, the door to the home directly across the yard opened and Joseph stepped outside, wincing in the bright morning sunlight. Welcome, the weary young father said as he motioned the shepherds forward. Zechariah led the way across the yard to where Joseph stood waiting for them. Joseph, we understand your wife has given birth to a son, he began as the other men hung back nervously. Yes, Joseph said proudly. He was born just a few hours ago. 
Zechariah cleared his throat, took a deep breath, and then explained why he and his friends had come. We were in the fields watching the sheep at that same hour, he said. Suddenly an angel appeared in our midst, his robe shining brightly as the sun. He said he came to bring us wonderful news that would be a source of joy for all people. Joseph's eyes grew wide as the old shepherd continued. The angel said the Messiah had been born right here in Bethlehem. He told us that we would find him swaddled in cloths, like a peasant child and lying in a manger. Then the sky was filled with angels singing praises to God. They sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Is it true, Joseph? Zechariah asked, his voice breaking. Has Messiah truly come at last, as one of us? Joseph's eyes filled with tears as he remembered his own angelic visitor many months before. The angel's message had changed the young carpenter's life. Joseph smiled and turned to the open door behind him. Come and see, he said. The shepherds gathered in the entryway and paused to allow their eyes to adjust to the dim light inside. Joseph led the way into the stable on the lower level, where Mary was resting on fresh straw beside a manger hewn out of stone. Joseph explained to Mary why the shepherds had come to visit. She nodded, her eyes crinkling in a smile above her veil and motioned for the men to come closer. Timidly, the shepherds approached the manger. A small bundle was nestled into the straw. The tiny baby's cheeks were round and pink. A dark, feathery swath of hair encircled his head. As they watched, the child began turning his head to the side, stretching his mouth wide in search of his mother's milk. What is his name? Judah asked softly. Yeshua, Joseph answered. Yeshua, the Lord saves, Zechariah whispered in awe, and he is wrapped in cloths like a shepherd's babe. The men stood silently for a moment watching the child. Suddenly Judah spoke. This is a Messiah for everyone, even shepherds like us. It really is good news that will bring joy to all the people. Come, we must tell people. With one last glance at the baby in the manger, the men turned to retrace their steps back to the fields, proclaiming the good news of Jesus' birth to everyone they met. Messiah has been born at last. An angel appeared to us as we kept watch over our flocks. He said we would find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger like a peasant child. We have seen it with our own eyes. It was just as the angel said. Let's pray. Father, your word's flawless forever faithful and true. At Eden's gate, an exile stretched endlessly before Adam and Eve. You whispered a promise over the dark night of their souls. I will come for you and bring you home. Your promise of rescue sustained your people throughout generations. It upholds us still. I rejoice in the hope of your Son, the greatest gift of all. With the angels and the shepherds I cry, glory to God in the highest. Amen. Day 12 of Brenshire's Advent Devotional, titled O Little Town, recalls this about Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in the tonight. This line comes from one of my favorite Christmas carols, A Little Town of Bethlehem. For a long time, I thought this line referred to Jesus, but it's actually referring to Bethlehem itself, the birthplace of Jesus, the little town on a hill where Jesus comes into the world to save his people. God is purposeful and all his details work together for reasons we'd see and don't see. Bethlehem is just another example of this. Bethlehem wasn't some random city on a map. The prophet Micah wrote 500 years before the coming of Jesus, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah is saying that Bethlehem may be small and seemingly insignificant, but a new ruler would come from it. That ruler would be Jesus. The word Bethel means house of God, and the word Lehem means bread. Right from the beginning, just in its name, Bethlehem is depicted as the house of bread. 
Could there be a more fitting place for Jesus, who is considered the bread of life, to be born? As I researched this charming little town of Bethlehem, I found another detail that struck me. Let's go back to the Old Testament to understand its fullness. Before Jesus, God required the people to make sacrifices to repent for their sins. It was a bloody, messy process, but it needed to happen repeatedly for the people to remain in right standing with God. At the Passover, where Moses led the people out of Egypt, God spoke to them through instruction. Take the lamb's blood and put it on the doorposts and lintel of the house. My angel of judgment is coming through the land of Egypt, but when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He did not instruct them to leave a baby lamb fully alive on the doorstep. It had to be the blood of the lamb. Thousands of years later, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus has become the sacrificial lamb for all people. He replaces all the sacrificial lambs with his living, breathing body. And it's not his life, his mere walking on the earth, that will save us, but his blood, his death. The sacrifice of his life is so that we can have ours and have it abundantly. But catch this. For centuries before Jesus arrived on the scene, Passover lambs were born and raised in a very specific place, and that place was Bethlehem. Just outside of Bethlehem, in the shepherd's fields, they raised a particular breed of the sacrificial lamb used to fulfill the purposes of Passover. At the end of their lives, these lambs were led from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for sacrifice, just as Jesus came from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to fulfill the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. I am so thankful for a God in all the details who sees this little town of Bethlehem most known for its Passover lambs and decides, this is the place where my son will be born, and one day he will die on a cross as the ultimate sacrificial lamb and cross out the blots and sins of my people for good. Okay, friends, before we end our time together today, I just have to share this thought about the wise men as Hannah Bruncher presented in day 22 of her devotional about Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. She began, If you've ever wondered about the validity of the Bible, then you're in perfect space. Come in with all your questions. Your girl is an investigator, and I don't just study the Bible. I investigate it. I want the correct details. I want to know if the text is correct. I want evidence, cold, hard evidence, to back things up. And so I will admit I was spun for a loop when I encountered the part of the Christmas story about the Magi coming to visit Jesus with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I believe the Magi were a group of kings— that's how I saw them portrayed in all the nativities I've come across. Robes of thick velvet and deep hues of purple and gold, their heads topped with crowns, and their faces adorned with thick, long beards. The wise men were not kings, not even close. Soon after I figured that out, I realized the wise men also didn't show up right on time. It was roughly two years after the birth of Jesus that the Magi made their appearance. And where it might be easy to think, great, all the magic of my childhood is being sucked out of the story as she writes this to me. I promise that's not true. The story of the Magi is more magical than you can ever imagine. The fact that these specific men showed up to worship Jesus is even more proof of our great and awesome God. In Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi starts with a single word, Behold. Because we've heard the word in telling after telling of the Christmas story, it's easy to become desensitized to it. But when Matthew writes, Behold, he says, Hey, listen up. Pay close attention. What I'm about to tell you is a big deal, and I need you to see this. The Magi coming was not extraordinary because they traveled far. The Magi coming was not impressive because they brought gifts. The Magi coming was notable, something to behold, because the Magi were not kings. They were pagan sorcerers. Magi comes from the word magic. Their visit is a big deal because they were A, not believers, and B, not the people you would expect to bow down and worship Jesus. These Magi specialized in dark arts. 
They were astrologers who believed in pagan practices. You can find them in the book of Exodus, working in Pharaoh's court to stand up against Moses with their magic tricks. They were the people who had violated the Old Testament, and the point of them being in this story is clear. Though so many might write these magi off, God doesn't. Charles Spurgeon wrote, It was far-reaching mercy, which gathered from lands which lay in darkness a company of men made wise unto salvation. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 reads a prophecy. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. These pagan astrologers from the east were proof of the nation's arrivals to worship Jesus. They were Gentiles. They were considered unclean. And when they saw the child and his mother, the scriptures say they fell and worshipped him at once. God ushers them into the story. God wants them at the forefront. God is saying, this is a new narrative, a narrative where people who most need a Savior can finally, finally find one. As Christians, we easily forget that this story is not about us as believers. It has never been, and it never will be. When God picks sorcerers to be the first to behold His bigger plan, He lets us know that the story of the gospel is a story for everyone. For anyone who needs hope, for anyone who feels lost and broken, for anyone who wishes to turn their back on things that never filled them so they can finally feel whole. He wants us to know that by excluding people or discounting people, we miss the point of Jesus coming in the first place. Wow, just wow. I hope you were as blessed as I was to take a look at the Christmas story as written in this way, as well as the insightful devotionals from Hannah Brencher. It most definitely provides us with a fresh take to consider about these events as we've been looking for throughout our time together in this episode today. Touching and so very amazing. As we have repeatedly discussed, one of the things I love about taking a closer look at the Christmas story each year is that we can learn so many new things. Many of us grew up hearing the Christmas story, but as we've been digging deeper this Advent season, I hope you are seeing even more connections and understanding it even more clearly. That is why it's so important for us to continue opening our Bibles together, my friends. Truthfully, though, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus each December, we are celebrating so much more than His birth. The story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men even all take us down the path toward the most significant event in human history, the death and resurrection of this baby born in Bethlehem. For this reason, when thinking of Christmas, it's hard to not think of Easter as well. When we celebrate the birth of our Savior, we're honoring the sacrifice He made for us too. Gathering around the manger is only part of it. We also need a journey to the foot of the cross. We are actually told in the first chapter of the New Testament why Jesus came. He will save His people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Christ, the Savior, is born. With that thought in mind, my friends, I will be back in the middle of January to challenge each one of us to have 2023 be the year we push forward into our God-sized callings, the year that we accept God's divine invitation, as Moses did, and then go. I can't wait to share this message that has been stirring in my heart for a while, a message that feels especially important as we will soon be turning the page to a new year. Be sure you don't miss out on this one as we will all be encouraged to obey God's prodding in our lives, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. And yes, you did hear that right, my precious OOBTers. The next episode release will be on January 18th. OOBT is going to be taking a pause during the holiday season and into the first part of 2023 to allow me the time and space to be fully present with my family as we take moments to celebrate, to grieve, to process, to begin healing, to be grateful for the gift of God with us especially in the hard good lives God is writing for us all. Until then, I am wishing you the merriest of Christmases, my friends. Be sure to take a look at the show notes for links to some bonus content highlighting various aspects of the Christmas story, 
I promise it will be so worth our time to watch and listen as we try to set our hearts and minds on the reason we celebrate this Christmas season. With all that said, I hope you continue in the days leading up to Christmas to make time to do as we have done in the last couple Advent episodes, to dig deep into all things related to Jesus' birth story, and to remember to focus on exactly why that baby in the manger means so much to each one of us. Christ our Savior is born. To fully lean into the awe plus the wonder of Christ our Savior's birth. So, so good. If you are loving this show, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating and or a review. Also, please tell your friends as that's the number one way people find out about OOBT. It's because you tell them, and for that I am so very thankful. Join me here on Wednesday, January 18th as we once again dive into the pages of God's Word together, one chapter at a time. And be sure to check out the show notes on my website, mfaring.com, where I've listed all of the resources and scriptures as mentioned in this episode, plus a whole bunch of bonuses just in time for Christmas. And just a thought here, but maybe this holiday break is an opportunity for playing catch up on any OOBT episodes you may have missed or even re-listen to some previous episodes, whether the first two why and how episodes or even last year's Advent episodes. Well, you get the idea, right? <laughs> this is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.